Welcome to Wise Up Governance and Boards podcast, brought to you by Three Wise Owls Governance Consultants, covering hot topics in governance, risk, latest regulatory changes, and issues keeping directors and executives awake at night. Here are your hosts, Ainsley Cunningham and Deb Anderson. Welcome to another episode of Wise Up. Today we are joined by Anne Parkin. Anne is currently a non-executive director of Queensland Treasury Corporation. Anne offers over 25 years of board experience in global banking, securities trading and superannuation, spanning across the Asia-Pacific region. As an experienced non-executive director and chair of boards, Anne has provided leadership and expertise in operations, risk management, operating in multiple regulatory environments, global client management and project delivery to guide regulated entities, startups, governments and SMEs. She is recognised as international industry leader with deep expertise in operational management of high-level financial transactions and highly regulated and multi-jurisdictional industry. She is a strong leader in multicultural workplaces while bringing a strong tactical overlay and commercial acumen while maintaining a high level of personal integrity. Anne supports business development whilst ensuring compliance. Her key professional achievements are many and include the successful implementation of three global systems, each project budget greater than US $50 million, an APAC within budget, on time and with no adverse client impact. Another project led to the reduction of unfunded liability in a state superannuation fund, which was forecast to save 17.3 million in year one and up to 500 million by year 10, reducing the unfunded liability by 1.5 billion. Welcome, Anne. Thank you. Welcome. Very impressive bio, Anne. (laughs) Been around a long time. So tell us about um, your journey to this point. Um, I have a very short answer to that, which is that the year I left school was the year they legislated equal pay for equal work for women, which is a sad starting point. Um, At that time, really, you became a teacher, maybe a nurse, a doctor. I became a teacher. But over over years, I worked out that wasn't actually my strength. And I moved through a number of industries as I went on my career journey. So briefly, I went from teaching to retail management to research analyst in a stockbroking firm um, to superannuation, general management, I would put it, and from there into investment banking, where again, I was always acting as a general manager, different product, same type of skills. So yes, when I was in superannuation, I was responsible for issuing um, 42,000 cheques a fortnight. Well, never actually did one. <laughs> yes, I was responsible for processing several million transactions a year when I was in Asia. Um, in equities, never actually processed one. But I could bring together what was necessary, direct people, get them to go where they needed to go. So you're part of... Um Advisory boards, Anne, tell us a bit about um, what skills you bring to the table for an advisory board. Um, I think I think when you're a small company, an SME, um, and I've been involved with a number over the years, is people have great ideas. I mean, honestly, some people are truly 
magnificent with the ideas they come up with. They can't do everything and they need support. They need someone who can, they can bounce off but who can also push back to them, who can say, stop, stop, you can't do that. We need to come up with a different solution for what you're trying to achieve. And I find that whilst I've worked in huge global banks, you can take a lot of those skills and help someone building a business, not so you weigh them down, but so that you can allow them to build their base to keep moving forward. When you started your overseas banking journey, how was the diversity side of things for you? Um, so when I left Australia, um, I had no female peers, basically. I had a lot of female admin operational staff. It was, the culture was challenging, um, no doubt about it. And the way I would think of it is, if they, spe- if they took a risk of a dollar, then they wanted a dollar back. So sometimes in compliance and regulatory issues, that's not really taking you in the right direction. When I got to Hong Kong, I actually had female peers. I had, it was a much more diverse um, management, although still if you were Chinese or a local, your opportunities were less, but net-net there were more women in positions of um, leadership in the executive. So it was quite pleasant and also they had a much more compliant culture, <laughs> which made my life more, more simple. So tell us um, about one of your advisory board roles that you've been a part of, Anne. So probably the last one where I was chair of a small startup. Um, there was a tech, we had a technology which was going to convert biomass, so paper, timber, even foodstuffs potentially, could be turned into diesel using a process. Um, it was a good process. Uh, we had built a pilot plant in China, so we were actually putting through um, testing. Uh, we had a university here. We had funded for some government funding for a PhD student. Mm. Sadly, in the end, even though we, everything looked quite good, we had to put it into liquidation because as directors, you can't trade when you're insolvent. And we'd been an advisory board, then we'd become a full board. And I think one of the things lessons I learned out of it is you have to actually decide whether you want an advisory board or you want a full board. And there are reasons for both. But I think if I had my time again, I'd probably say let's run as an advisory board for longer. However, he was out raising money, so people wanted to see who was on the advice, you know, who was on the board because that gave a certain strength. Mm. Um, and it was it was a good idea. It lasted he, the business ran for almost five years, which is quite long for a startup. Mm. Uh, but we just couldn't get enough funding together fast enough to keep going which is more about our operating model probably than our finances when you actually unwrap the whole thing. Mm. And with the benefit of hindsight, is there something you would have done differently in that instance to potentially um, see the survival of that business? So if I look back over the time, so one question would be, should we have moved from being a 
advisory board because that brought another set of regulatory things we had to deal with. Two, um, I think what we should have done is stopped at one point and gone out and raised the $10 million that we needed rather than sort of keep going and we were quite good at raising just enough money for the next payroll or the next payroll or the next thing. And probably in retrospect, we sort of talked about it. I should have just said, no, we have to stop. You know, mm. yes, do a little bit but stop and let's focus on getting $10 million because I actually think it was fundable. But um, our CEO, the founder, had a lot of balls in the air and he wasn't looking at here. He was looking at his future. Mm. Um, and probably I think if you're in one of these small businesses, it's you do have to put roll up your sleeves and do a lot more than you might do in a bigger company. Mm. So in your experience as a non-executive director, what are some of the issues you think that are keeping directors awake at night? I think at the moment they're probably awake a lot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so looking at a couple and, and hearing, you know, colleagues talk, it wasn't like this was a slow burn down the economy. I mean, it literally fell off a cliff for some of these businesses overnight. Um, I think it's challenged small companies, um, and we've got one we're helping just down the road from us, that uh, they were going gangbusters. You know, they were, it was a small business, you know, Monday they're here, Tuesday it's closed. Mm. It's, it forces you to look at your cash flows. It forces you to look at your operating model. Are you doing the right business? Have you got the right balance in your business? So they had a business which, you know, was very highly dependent on one part of their business. So they've had to sort of st stand back and look at it and say, well, what does that mean? So they'd grow in another little business on the side. Mm. Have they costed their business or their products correctly? So in this case... They didn't have a product costing model. So they actually sort of didn't really know what their individual products cost. When they went down and worked it out, they worked a couple out a couple of them they were losing money on, mm. even before they started. Um, I think it challenges boards also to look at it and say, we might have been going this way. We had a good plan, good, you know, good assumptions. We've done all the right stuff, but we can't. We can't just keep going and hoping it's going to change. I think it forces a lot more proactive review of what people are doing. Um, even looking at QTC, we've had to stand back and look at it and say, so what we were doing this, what does that mean? Um, we'd already raised the, the debt funding we, had, we needed to for the financial year. Well, you know, what we raised and what was going to be needed were two different numbers again as the government throws, you know, money at, the economy trying to um, support people. Mm. So I think very flexible. I think risk becomes really high because people are trying to make changes. You're making them with maybe less information than you might have had. You're making them on the run. So I think the risk for businesses is much higher just because they're having to make rapid decisions rather than being able to sort of look at it and think about it and come back around it a few more times. Mm. I think this is where, as well, um, a lot of business continuity and resilience planning comes into the fore. Um, well, it's interesting because I asked about business continuity earlier in the year 
And they and I was told, and a couple of other businesses I just happened to be talking to, they, oh yeah, we all got business continuity plans. And I said, yes, for the bis- the ri- the flood of the Brisbane River, or you know something like that. But I said, have you got one for a pandemic? Well, it's the same. I said, well, actually, I'd gone through SARS in Hong Kong, and I had a great business continuity plan, but it assumed that every you couldn't get into the building. It didn't assume that you could get infected. It didn't assume that actually people couldn't get on a plane and fly to Singapore and set up down there without going into quarantine. So all of our planning, basically, we threw out and had to do a very quick plan Mm. to deal with the pandemic. So, you know, I was talking to another person and where she worked and she said, oh, yes, we were all told to work from home. She works for a very big department and she said, but we can only have 50 people on our remote access at a time, so I can't log in. Mm-hmm. You know, like things that people, because they haven't thought about everybody being away. What they've thought about is some people being away. Yeah, and or that, some people logging in remotely. Yes, yeah. yes. So it's been a lot of those sort of issues um, have really caused people to question things. So I think going forward, our business continu- continuity plans will have a pandemic chapter. <laughs> Yes, absolutely. And I think too, um, a lot more alignment back to strategic priorities and being able to um, put some of those things on hold and yes. uh, being able to be have a little bit more agility and flexibility on that side of things as well. Which comes back to the earlier point. So, you know, the business falls off a cliff. You can't work in the office. So there's all these things going on. You've got to be able to sort of work your way around some of your options. And you can't um, hug your idea any longer. No. <laughs> You've got to be prepared to throw the baby and the bathwater out in order to redo what needs to be done, if possible. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think a lot of the larger accounting firms over the last few years have sort of realised that um, five-year strategic plans are no longer the go-to model. It's more the two- to three-year strategic planning um, biggest stress testing on your budget, your cash flow, your operational yes. plan and um, really strengthening the governance and risk management around those things. Yes, I agree. And I think for small businesses that makes it hard because they're trying to grow and they don't have a lot of um, – they don't have a very experienced management quite often. They don't have a big balance sheet. They often are pushing an idea that they've come up with so it's not like they're a nice big business with big balance sheets and ASX listed and all those things that help them survive. You know, they're trying to pay for their house mortgage and feed the family and grow their idea and it just, it's tough. Yeah, absolutely. Tough at the best of times <laughs> without a pandemic. Yeah. <laughs> now, how are your virtual board meetings going? Um, we just had one, I've had one board meeting virtually because we always have, April's not a board meeting month, Right. Uh, so I've had a couple of committee meetings and the board meeting. It's gone fine. Um, but you see, I was the only person in Hong Kong on a global course, so I was always doing these things. Um, it went efficiently. We had a few minor technical glitches. Um, I think people probably need to look at themselves, see how they project, because I'm not sure that some people had actually looked at where their camera was relative to, the, <laughs> relative to their face, etc. And, uh, but we stopped, we'd have, you know, five minute breaks and uh, we're quite a good board. We, we interact quite well. So it wasn't like there was someone there who's dominating it or trying to push it. Everyone was quite 
um, collegiality now working together over the video. Do you think they'll continue virtually or will they be back face to face? I think what it'll do, it will open up for people to attend, right, which maybe hasn't been done before because QTC, everyone's in Queensland, it's small. But I do think that um, there will be more board meetings and more meetings virtually uh, and you don't need to meet every time physically at a cost, you know, a huge cost. I do think it can be. I just think you have to develop a um, some behaviours and, you know, train people how to do it, set the ro- configure the rooms correctly, all those sort of things to make it easier. Um, it doesn't work very well when I was sitting in Hong Kong and there was a desk in New York with 10 men and me because they'd start talking to each other <laughs> until I'd go, hey, boys, I'm still here. <laughs> and then they'd realise because I wasn't there and the room was not really well configured for a video call. Yeah, I think too you lose sometimes the um, body language or the context of the conversation. Um, yes. Sort of when um, we have company secretary appointments and um, the board are all in person and you're taking okay. minutes over the phone, um, you lose that context in the room. And I think I think you have to get together a number of times. You can't do it all remotely all the time. But I think you can do it some of the time without, because you're you're using up that credit you've built up in your relationships already. Mm. Um, but yes, I don't think our ne- I think our next board meeting will definitely be uh, remotely because the boardroom is not big enough for everyone to have, you know, two square meters, plus the executives, plus the company secretary, plus plus plus. Just we're not going to fit. Yeah, absolutely. From an economic <laughs> perspective, it's better too, isn't it? Because you're saving on flights and accommodation. Yeah. Most people are in, for us, there are, but I think you're right, absolutely, um, economically it would work. So with some of these um, successful achievements of your uh, professional career, and tell us um, about some of the highlights of those and what you've seen work really, really well. Um. I guess I, th- I need to t- sort of talk about myself a little bit. <laughs> um, one of the things I took out of teaching is I actually like coaching people and talking to them. So that was a positive I brought out of my initial career. Um, I am very delivery-oriented, very delivery-oriented. So once I've committed I'm going to deliver something, I push really hard to, to make it happen. Um, so if you add those two bits together... Once I've decided that something is to be done, um, I'm also very analytical, so I analyse it and whatever, and then I go for it. So I think in some ways that's part of my success. I think also in some of the big IT projects, etc. cetera, um, I would talk to everyone. I wasn't really worried if someone made a mistake. It was really about getting to the end point. So I do a lot of, I used to do a lot of management by walking about and talking to people, and even over the phone. You know, I used to have staff in all sorts of different offices. I think I had nine different offices. And I would speak to them every fortnight. We'd have a 20-minute call. Um, but to make sure that they heard my voice, I heard their voice, we talked about it. Because sometimes people don't want to pick up a phone to tell you there's a problem. But if you're there physically or you contact them, it's much easier just to sort of, oh, look, I'm having this problem. And so over the, the course of doing my projects, um, 
it really is those things together going through the issues. So, for example, when I moved to Hong Kong, they were trying to put in a project that, and they got themselves down to 157 items that hadn't been resolved. I mean, why they still had 157, I have no idea. <laughs> and, of course, everyone had got in their corners. So you had IT in one corner and you had the operations people in a corner, you had the front office people in a corner, and nobody was talking to each other, so 157 wasn't going anywhere. Anyway, we... So we, I went through each of the items until I understood the problem. And I, I said to the front office guys, look, you know, we're doing all this special work for these clients, gave them the information. I said, can you just go and ask the client how they're using it so I can find a new solution? Well, out of all of them, we cut all of them because the client thought we were just doing it for fun. You know, like they hadn't asked for it. Well, they had, obviously, sometime in the dim dark past. And then there was a couple of others where the system didn't want to configure whatever the special taxes were for one of the markets. And I, I spoke to the front office and so we just came up and we ate the fee. Like there were some really easy solutions, but someone had to look at them, think about them, and then go and talk to people to come to a resolution rather than saying, oh, I've got to have this. Mm. Well, I'm not going to give it to you. Well, I'm not going to do it. You know, like where the where they get to these, those endpoints. Yeah. So it's, I find I, that's what I do a lot. I talk to the people and resolve it and take a commercial outlook because you don't need to spend millions of dollars to build that. Let's just suck up the $1 or whatever it was per transaction. We'll get it back somewhere else rather than sort of being super over the top. And I did that when I was in the superannuation industry and whatever – I did three Y2K implementations, same thing again, you know, what are we trying to achieve? What do we need? What would we like? Like, do you know how many people when they came off the old green screens, the old, very old ones, what do you want? I need a green screen. Why do you need a green screen? <laughs> well, I've got one now. <laughs> Sorry, that's not going to happen. <laughs> but that's the level you have to have the discussion. And someone has to be prepared to say, I'm not doing it. Mm. And people don't like that. They'll, they'll waffle around. No, nah, you tell them the answer, you tell them the truth and you go with it. Yeah, and take them on the journey really, isn't yes. it? It's that whole change management piece and communications critical. It wasn't a profession when I started it. Yeah, no, <laughs> I doubt it was. <laughs> and earn their respect. You ha yes, you must earn respect. They don't have to like you, but they have to respect you. Yeah, it's that sort of, um, I guess, the analogy where it's a... Uh, 100% input and then 70% agreement and we're all going on the same yes. journey. Yeah, yeah. So um, I, the other thing is I was at, in one role I was in, they were, would they close us, sell us, downsize us, upsize? I wrote so many business plans. And um, but what's challenging then is, well, that's happening is you actually have to keep running the business until the business decides what they want to do. And... Um, I used to have a weekly meeting. I told them everything because I had to keep them on my side. They had to feel loyal to me in a way in order to stay as we went through whatever the process was. Um, they were going to get if – if we closed down, they'd get a redundancy, but that wasn't the point. It just made people so unsettled. So they had to have something they could hang on to and I would answer any question. If I couldn't answer it, I'd actually say, look – I actually can't answer it because I either don't know the answer or I really can't tell you the answer. But when I can, you know, I'll bring it back to you. 
And we survived the whole experience without losing people and the business went on. But it takes – got, people have got to trust you. And what have you found um, in each of these experiences? Were there any major challenges that you've had to overcome? I think I'm so focused on going forward sometimes <laughs> that I just push them aside. Um, I think you have the normal project type challenges, which is um, someone's promised you the earth, the stars and the moon and you're going to get just a little one acre block type of thing. So you're going to get, you get less than you probably give up initially. Um, sometimes it's very hard to get people to change. Green screens as an example. Mm. Um, I had one place they were running in parallel and I kept saying, we don't need to do it anymore. We're fine. We're finished. Can you just sign off? No, no, no. So in the end, I told IT to come in over the weekend. We took out all the old green screens. Monday, we had minor hysterics and then after that, everyone moved on. But um, I think sometimes people get very locked into the positions of what they want. They don't like People do not like change quite often. Um, I think in big corporates, sometimes you can be partway through a project and then someone changes their mind, cuts the funding, changes the direction, you know, and you're left sort of, oh, well, I'm going okay. You're like, but someone else in the world has decided you know, mm. they don't want to go ahead like that. Um, and you also have to be able to influence your sponsors and your exec the different people in the organisation to make sure they keep coming with you. So you've got to make sure that you've got people behind you who are going to stand there and protect you as you make the make the necessary changes. So um, your ability to influence and network within your organisation upwards becomes very important. Yeah, and I think equally downwards as well if um, you don't have that sort of buy-in and credibility. Yes. If you are, like you say, making multiple changes over and over again, um, you sort of end up getting bogged down with change fatigue. People um, lose trust, they lose buy-in, you lose credibility, the people at the top lose Absolutely. credibility and it just becomes this vicious cycle that sort of emanates a poor culture. Yes. Yeah, I think if you... If you can build trust and you can show that you've thought through and you keep people informed, you know, you're asking people to go above and beyond. Um, you're asking them to do all sorts of things. I think the least as a executive and, in fact, as a board member is you owe them the respect. And, and my management philosophy for many years has manage unto others as you would like to be managed. <laughs> So, and sometimes I've had to tell my manager I don't like the way he's managing me. <laughs> so, but a lot of people wouldn't do that. Yeah, absolutely. I think too, like it, a lot of pressure comes down on those sort of operational teams that um, they are, as you say, managing this in line with their day-to-day -day job on top of project work, on top of then a sudden change in direction. Mm. And there's so many moving parts that I think sometimes management... Um, fail to see uh, sort of a renegotiation of resources there at times. and I think um, as a manager you have to uh, – you can't protect your staff. I'm not saying that, but I think you have to represent them properly. You have to make sure that the people who need to know, know. And um, I did have a reputation for being quite happy to speak out um, but I felt secure doing it because I actually had quite a good um, sponsorship from several people 
and I knew that – so I had that reputation. I could live with that. But they would also make sure that I didn't get, um, you know, shot for it. And at one stage I went to some meetings in the US, I remember, and they said as we went in, because I had come over to do a presentation, I said, now, Anne, stick to your presentation. Do not give your opinion because she will just shoot you. You know, and no one, else, no one else there is going to stand up for you. I mean, the, the, the woman was dreadful, right? This was a woman. But, you know, the fact that they even told me that they made sure I knew what I had to do and as far as they could, they protected me. But the reality was if she didn't like you, she just sacked you. It's a fine culture to be it's a working f- in, isn't it? Ah, uh, investment banking. Yeah. <laughs> and, like, obviously without naming any names, have you seen any examples of um, – poor leadership or that sort of toxic culture? Can I answer it in the other way? Yes, absolutely. Um, I joined QTC about four years ago and they were just starting down a major project. They basically changed all their systems, their processes, their operating structure, their change management, their people management. They've won awards in HR magazines. They get their... um, Surveys of staff and feedback are phenomenal. I've never seen the like. Um, And it's really the counter, which is they took people on the journey. They kept them very well informed. They gave a lot of training and talked about what needed to be done. And um, they celebrated all the successes and they just went ahead. And it's it's a very, very good culture and it's comes down to obviously the CEO and his senior people around him. There's been huge, if you actually looked at the org chart, say four or five years ago versus now, has very little resemblance, but you know, they've done it. Um, And I think that's a great, it's a great boom and they're still doing it. I mean, there's still, even through all of this um, COVID and whatever, um, one of our challenges is that our staff have had so much communication and so much care shown for them. It's going to be a bit challenging when they come back into the office to keep up that same level of care. Whereas I talk to some other people, you know, and they've had no calls from their managers or anyone to make sure they're all right. Mm. You know, it's just do more work, do more work, you know. Don't let the fact you're working at home in isolation impact on what you're doing, um, and that can be challenging as well, especially if, um, you know, some of these staff members might be parents, might have had to manage homeschooling, might have had um, other financial impacts to their household through absolutely partners not working or anything like that. It's sort of, I guess, managing that um, individual's uh, mental well-being and me- mental health as well. Yes, as I, my, my son and his partner have just moved overseas and... They're in a tiny little one-bedroom apartment. And just because you've agreed to live together doesn't mean you want to live together 24 by 7. (laughs) (laughs) And I think it's all those challenges exactly as you're describing. Um, But a lot of people don't – it's all right for them, but they don't think about anyone else. Um, They don't walk in the shoes of their staff or anything like that, Mm. whereas um, certainly at QTC there's been a lot of effort making sure everything's working you know, if they need anything, um, very, very caring, but very empowering, I think, for the staff. So as a director, there's a fine balance in terms of reporting as to what, whether you get too much information, not enough information. Yes. 
What do you think is the ideal balance there? Oh, I don't know the answer. <laughs> <laughs> one of the, I think one of the issues um, as you move from executive to board director is you have to stop being the doer and become the questioner and whatever. That's, oh, sorry. That is a challenge, right? For someone like me, where I was the doer and, I, and quite actively doing, um, so that's one challenge. I think this, the second thing I've noticed is the executives like to display what they're doing. And we encourage them by asking the executive or the next level down to come to a board meeting and present on whatever we're, you know, we ask them to present on. So by definition, you're getting a lot of detail quite often there. Thirdly, um, the managers like telling us, you know, the executive, they like to tell us so we know what they're doing. Um, and I notice that we all have a propensity if given too much encouragement, we'll all get into the detail. So, you know, you have to keep pulling yourself back. Um, one of the things I've noticed is we've our board meeting lasts for three and a half hours and that is a very good um, control <laughs> on how much information we can go through. Um, I did hear a director um, for one of the big banks in Hong Kong was reading 600 pages of risk items. And I just said, well, how can you possibly do that? Oh, he read it on the plane coming up. I'm sorry, I couldn't do that. So to me, there was, I always think of that one and go, somewhere someone has to make a judgment of those 600 pages and sort of sort and sift them in some ways. Um, I think when you start as an SME, you've got the other problem, which is who's going to write a board paper? <laughs> so how do you get enough information to actually have a record on your, of your board meeting that you've considered at least some fundamental issues mm. without making it a, um, you know, causing the CEO or someone to have to write these mammoth papers? Because they are a big overhead for the executives, um, so I don't have, I can't tell you a, a straight answer. All I can look is, is in my experience, um, have we got the level right? When we do our board review at QCC, that's a question we always are asked and we put, I know people put in all sorts of different suggestions, but I would say we can do it in three and a half hours. Most board, the, you know, we're talking a couple of hundred pages, 250. You know, if you took out the finance, which is there anyway, you know, it's, it seems to be enough, not too much. And if we ask a question, we always get the answer. So, yeah. And I think, too, if you um, strike the right balance with the frequency of the meetings as well throughout the year yes. and um, sort of have that um, sort of tailored calendar where you know what's coming up, it's budget planning here, it's yes. annual reporting there, it's um, strategy review, et cetera, yes. and um, really have those milestones in place. It's And we have, we have all of that and we've also um, pushed more down to some of our committees, so we're trying to get the committees to do a little bit more. So we bolstered the number of um, directors on the committees. So some of the stuff that was going to the board every year we've now pushed down to the committees for and we'll only go to the board every other year. And, you know, things like that have worked quite well. Um, yeah. So they can focus on the detail then and just yes. sort of give those high-level recommendations up yes. to the board. And you know when it goes to the board, four of the board directors have already agreed to it. So it's already you know it's already had a really good going over. Um, so that has also improved um, some of the, 
the time we spent. So if you took it, if you took all the committees and added that in, actually, there's quite a lot of time goes in, but it's better directed time. So I guess one of the burning questions that um, is being sort of out of the back of um, royal commission, etc., is how do you manage culture? Oh, now, there's a very interesting question. Um, I found watching the Royal Commission very interesting. I, um, at the time that the Royal Commission was happening, I went to, to, went to a function and they were all talking about this. And I, I can't help myself. I piped up and said, but this all came out after the GFC, a lot of the banks, all these things in various forms were what the global banks were accused of and we went, you know, we went through and did a huge amount of work, you know, trying to address some of those issues. And sadly, there were some people sitting at that table who said, that, well, they just didn't think it applied to Australia. <laughs> I know, this is really scary. I was ser- this was a concern. I find the culture issue quite a challenge because once the culture's embedded, it is really hard to change it. Um, and... I think that's the first issue. I think the second issue is that some of these banks are very big, complex organisations. Left hand doesn't know what the right hand's doing and IT does something and no one really, you know, people don't necessarily go through it. Um, And I think so as a result, I'm not sure that people necessarily understand the the end-to-end business so they don't necessarily know the question to ask, for example. And if you're dealing with salespeople who just want to get the sale, I tell you, if you come from an operational background, you've got to be really bloody-minded sometimes to actually get yourself heard above all this beautiful revenue versus your system that can't do it. Mm. Um, now, I'm talking here in big banking terms you know, millions of transactions. You can't do things manually. You have to work your way around it. And everyone has to accept that if you have to do an enhancement, it takes time. So yes, you can sign off contingent, but you have to have a really good culture within that to do it. Um, I don't think people signing up for a, you know, charter of culture or behaviour, honestly, some of these things should have been taught to you by your parents. And I have a a 94-year-old mother. She was a doctor just after the Second World War. So she was a very unusual woman. But she's our... So here's this intelligent woman now who needs a lot of support. Honestly, if she likes you, she'll sign anything now. You know, that's the stage of her life. Someone has to protect her, right? And I look at it and I go, so if this is your mother, your sister, your daughter, why would you do these things? Mm. Um... People make mistakes. When I was with the State Superannuation Board of Victoria, they told a funny story that um, it was a defined benefit scheme. So people got paid a benefit, uh, you know, a pension when they retired. And then if they reti- died, their spouse would continue to get it. So the question was always trying to keep track of who died, <laughs> right? So you could stop the pension. And they told the funny story of this woman had rung up um, and said that, she understood that her mother was mad. She was sent off, but she was still alive. What turned out what they had done is they used to get the death notices out of all the newspapers and run it against the database. 
and they got an exact match, so they stopped the pension. <laughs> but, you know, it, it was an embarrassment and you wouldn't do it voluntarily. But the counter is, well, you can't keep paying money if people aren't alive. Another time we sent them all a letter and said, would you like to sign this to tell us you're alive? <laughs> or words to that effect, <laughs> <Yeah>. right? <laughs> because it's the question, what do you do? How do you get an answer, yes, right? To an so, awkward question. <laughs> <laughs> we got some very funny responses answer. to that one. <laughs> so I think, you know, I look at the banks. They'll do it again. They've done it before. They'll do it again. Um, I think um, board matrices probably need to consider more of these sort of issues rather than the, all these salespeople who just see the revenue. Um, I used to do a lot of regulatory reporting and it was my name signed off on it and I was the one that was going to go to jail in Hong Kong if it was wrong. But, you know, I understood what went into preparing it. But if I told my front office guys, they'd just, the eyes would glaze over and it wasn't where they were interested in. Mm. Fair enough, they didn't have to be because I was doing it. But people have to understand that regulatory reports have to have a certain rigour to them, therefore you must do certain things and... You just can't go in and make changes. Culturally, you have to have a culture which allows people to bubble things up. You know, it might take a couple of goes, but you've got to keep pushing. But also, I guess it's really around um, ensuring there's no complacency. Uh, I think what you find over time is poor culture is really driven from um, poor governance and the people who – these aren't necessarily wrong people yeah. doing wrong things. They're good people who – just find they don't get a voice or they're not heard yeah. or... They're too junior. You know, things... You know, how can you expect a young person who's got two or three years' experience to turn around to an executive director and say, we shouldn't do that? I mean, mm. be real, right? That's not going to happen. But if they tell their line manager who tells their line manager, it has to come through the process and be dealt with mm. and or, captured. Yeah, or where they have spoken up in the past and it's not taken seriously yeah. and just get brushed off and then... It lacks luster, it lacks credibility, it's and not that enforcement line, the no consequence management, no accountability. Yeah. And I think, I still think that in the big banks there's, I still think there are issues there that have to be dealt with. They'll clean off everything that was on the Royal Commission, that'll be done at whatever cost. Have they really changed anything fundamentally? I'm not sure that they really have, which is why I say something else will happen again, inevitably. Mm. It's more about them putting in the processes that were sort of blamed for a lot of the, the issues and the challenges. So you put the process in, but you haven't yeah. changed the culture. You haven't... Mm. You know, I look at it and I go, so you're still charging a dead person fees. That will happen, like mm. the one I just said. All you need to do, though, is once you're told they're dead, you refund the fees and it's all done. It's mm. not, there's, no, there's nothing wrong with making a mistake in those sort of issues where timing is a, is a challenge. The mistake is not doing anything yeah, and no ignoring it. Yeah, no Yeah, yeah. So uh, I find the Royal Commission a very interesting um, review of where Australia's corporate culture is to an extent. Mm. And it seems the bigger the um, environment, the harder it is to get a handle on it and, you know, the sort of smaller, agile businesses, if they have that sort of governance or the culture of governance earlier on in their life cycle, yes. um, you have a lot more chance of having a greater impact. 
I, th- I think, and I don't think small business can do this because I just don't think they have the capacity, but in reality, when you set up, you should set up the culture you want from day one because it's much easier to copy the culture from someone who's already there than trying to change a culture that's deeply embedded in an organisation. Mm. So um, I think, um, you know, talking to some people, I think, you know, when we've talked about it, I said, you know, really... You don't have to do a lot to do that when you're small. Mm. You just have to have actually articulated in your own mind the sort of culture you want and then you can work within that framework yeah. until it goes along. I think if you let it grow higgledy-piggledy and then you, you turn out where you don't want to be and then you try and change it, that's a much bigger challenge, especially if you end up with people spread around the country or globally. I think if everyone's in one office, it's easier to go around and do it. But, you know, as you get bigger, that gets harder to do. Mm. You find a lot of it happens as well um, when it isn't there earlier on and, you know, a company might sort of get to a point where they've grown, they're about to scale, they sort of might look at um, other capital options, whether it's venture capital, private equity or um, pre-IPO, and then all of a sudden they're thrown a framework that they have to have and then they go to implement it and their staff sort of... um, don't know, well, what's a code of conduct? What's a securities trading policy? Um, yes. Yeah. When, I, when I moved to Hong Kong, um, Swiss Bank Corporation and the Union Bank of Switzerland, two, two banks had merged. Now, in Australia, it was almost insignificant because UBS was very small in Australia, so it wasn't... In Hong Kong, Switzerland, a few places, both of them had really, really large businesses. So the merger was a challenge. Anyway... So I got there about two or three years after it happened, which isn't actually very long in a merger timetable. And it was amazing. I couldn't tell where anyone came from. They were just working at, I can't remember what our name was at that stage, doesn't matter. And it turned out when they did the merger, they actually did a whole plan. So they, um, they trained everyone. They insisted everyone had to answer the, the name of the bank and whatever the new name was. They went through the whole thing. You were never to ask anyone which bank they came from, you know, which side they came from, and it went through and through. So by the time I got there, they had a whole new organisation. And honestly, I couldn't tell when... When I asked the first time, they said, oh, no, no, we don't talk about that because we're now this. That was the past, we're now this. And and then I said, what do you mean? Oh, well, we did this. You know, they went through all the training they'd had and the, there was a huge amount of effort put in to take every individual who became part of the merged entity forward. So it wasn't, well, you know... UBS had 50 people and we only had 40, so, you know, whatever. And it was a very clever, very clever merger plan. Wow. If ever I have to do it, <laughs> you know, I will go back and Lessons revisit learned. that and learn it because it was so so well done and was recognised as well done. Because mm, it is incredibly challenging when you take two businesses of those size, size yes. taking everybody on the same so journey. A, see, in Australia we had UBS was like less than 100 people and Swiss Bank Corporation was several thousand, right? And they didn't really have much overlap. So, in fact, it just slotted together really quite easily. Everywhere else, though, they had a, you know, very large overlap. Um, and it was a much more complex business, therefore, to bring the merge. Just bringing IT systems together is enough of a challenge. Mm. And you find that a lot with um, sort of mergers and acquisitions and takeovers. The synergies that um, sort of are anticipated initially and never really truly realised. Usually the acquiring company does not do as well as they expect to out of the whole thing. Yeah, absolutely. So um, 
I think it looks easy on paper, but like a lot of these things, it's all that perspiration that goes in afterwards to try and make it work that actually is the key part of it. Breaking cultures, aligning systems, consolidating those things. Yes, yes. Leadership. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Well, I think that's about all we have time for in today's episode. But thank you so much, Anne, for joining us and for another episode of Wise Up. And My pleasure. It was really fun to talk to you. Thanks, Anne. Thank you. That's all for today. Until next time, happy podcasting. And remember, if you're enjoying the show, check out our other episodes and all things governance at www.threewiseowls.com.au.